Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. How about that fall weather? Anybody? Man, the best part about living in Knoxville, Tennessee, except for everything else that is great about Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, Yeah, Genesis chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. We're going to look at a couple different passages uh, in Genesis, including that one that Lindley just read, but uh, we'll start in Genesis 1. If you are new here, uh, like I said earlier, welcome, super glad that you're here. If you have any questions about who we are as a church or anything we can help with, any way that we can serve you, uh, we'd love to do that. Feel free to come by and say hey afterwards. Um, But just for you to know, if you are new, we've been in a series the past three weeks uh, called Question Everything, where we're kind of taking a look at some of the toughest, most pressing questions about faith in Jesus. And a lot of these questions have really been major factors in people deciding to deconstruct or even to leave their faith altogether. And so we're just taking our time as a church family uh, to try to speak to those very questions as helpfully as we possibly can. Um, And again, this week, uh, the topic that we are addressing really comes straight out of experiences that that I and our staff have had with those who are in the deconstruction process. Several years ago, uh, I was invited to a group discussion here in Knoxville consisting of people in various stages of that deconstruction journey. And I'll say getting to be there, we hosted it right here at our building, Uh, getting to be there and and be able to listen to the stories of people in that group uh, was incredibly helpful to me as a pastor. Just gave me one more window into the types of experiences that people have had with the church over the years and, and really understanding some of the experiences that make people want to walk away from it all. So it was so helpful to meet those people and hear a lot of their stories. But as we went around the room and and as each person in that room shared some of their experiences with the church, I I began to notice a trend. Uh, All of the people that spoke in that room, which was every person but one, out of them, every person cited their sexuality or their sexual expression as one of the primary reasons that they were deconstructing their faith. For for some of them, it was that they were something other than straight and cisgender. So for one woman in the room, it was that her and her wife were not monogamous and they couldn't find a church that was comfortable with that. Others of them were straight, but they had had a bad experience with the church regarding some aspect of their sexuality or sexual expression. Every single person, except for one, mentioned sex as a significant point in their deconstruction journey. And as we went around the room and and people shared these stories, some of them seemed frustrated, some of them seemed angry, some of them just seemed disappointed and sad, effectively just concluding that they'd never be able to be a part of a community of faith because of all this. 
But one of the women in the room, after sharing her experience and, and embodying, I think, much of the mood in the room overall, she just said, from what felt like a very genuine place, she just said, I, I just don't understand why God cares who I sleep with. And based on my conversations with others who have walked away from the church or just never walked towards it in the first place, that is a pretty common sentiment from what I can tell. For whatever reason, people just have a difficult time understanding why sexuality is something that God has an opinion on in the first place. Now, I think there are plenty of reasons for that phenomenon, but I want to spend some time this morning on one of them, at least. Part of the reason, I think, for people's confusion and frustration in regards to this topic in the church is that the church has often failed to teach a holistic sexual ethic. The church has often failed to teach a holistic sexual ethic. Now, notice that I didn't say the church hasn't talked enough about sex. Lord knows that's not true, at least for most churches. I think we tend to talk about it plenty. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons that people are walking away from church over this issue so often is because sometimes I think the church has made it seem like sexuality is the only thing that God cares about. But at the same time, I don't know that the church has done the best job unpacking all of it and teaching all of it holistically. I don't know that we've done the best job unpacking the Bible's complete perspective on what sex is, what it's for, and how all of that contributes to how we approach it. A lot of the church's teaching around sex and sexual expression has often been truncated down to, to just one word, don't, right? Don't have sex, don't think about sex, don't think about having sex, just don't. Or, or maybe to be a little more generous about it, maybe we've narrowed it down to one rule, one prohibition, namely no sex outside of marriage. Now, hear me out, that's technically true. The Bible does indeed teach no sex outside of marriage. It's very clear about that. But boiling the Bible's teaching on sex down to that one prohibition is kind of like describing the Grand Canyon by saying, well, they really discourage you from jumping into the canyon and saying nothing else. It's like technically true and even important, but not all that helpful or complete, right? And I think that's how the church has often come across when we've talked about sex. And I think it is precisely that focus, that tendency in the church that has created so-called purity culture. That's the label given to the church's sometimes one-dimensional teaching on sex and sexuality, and specifically, the church's hyper-focus on abstinence. Now, again, to be clear, it isn't incorrect for the church to teach abstinence or purity outside of marriage as God's design for sex. That is God's design for sex. As far as I'm concerned, nobody needs to apologize for that ethic, but I think the problem is when the church's teaching on sex starts and stops there, when that's as far as it goes. Because once again, it's narrowing a complete theology and worldview around sex from the Bible to a singular negative command, and that's not reflective of what we find in the Bible at all. So today, I want to see if we can do a little more than that. What I want to do this morning is try to unpack a somewhat holistic sexual ethic from the scriptures, and then I want to spend some time comparing and contrasting that ethic with the one that our society has set forward. 
That's what I want to do this morning. We're going to start off with Genesis chapter 1. So look with me there, starting in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So notice that quite literally the first instruction God gives to humanity once he creates them is to, quote, be fruitful and increase in number. The English Standard Version of the Bible actually puts it a little more directly. It says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, you all seem like smart, educated people. I'm assuming you already know how human beings multiply. If not, I would normally say Google it, but maybe don't in this scenario specifically. But I'm assuming you know how that works. But suffice it to say, humans don't multiply by praying about it. They don't don't multiply by abstinence either. In fact, quite the opposite of abstinence, right? So it's easy to miss, and I get that it's easy to miss, because the language in this passage does connect sex directly to reproduction. And maybe that's not always how we think about it these days. But still, don't miss the direct implication right here in Genesis 1. God wants people to have sex. And you can quote me on that. (laughs) Maybe encourage people to listen to the whole teaching, but you can quote me on that. God wants people to have sex. It was his idea. So for all the talk there is about the Bible's restrictions around sex, the first command around sex in the Bible, on the first page of the Bible, no less, is actually a positive command. Participate in it. It's a part of who we are as human beings. Our sexuality and sexual desire as human beings are not dirty little secrets that God prefers we not talk about. They are core to our humanity. Now, they can be corrupted and distorted just like any other part of our humanity can, but they're not bad things in their original intention. In fact, they are good things, according to the Bible. Right here in Genesis 1, it says, God, quote, blessed them, as he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. If you skip down just a few verses to the end of chapter one in Genesis, you'll find this statement, which is even clearer. It says, God saw all that he had made. How much of, how much of what he had made? Excuse me. All of it, right? Every bit of it. He saw all that he had made up until this point, and it was very good. God surveyed everything that he had made so far on earth, including sex. And concluded that all of it was very good. That assessment at this point in the story included the male and female body, which at this point in the story are unclothed. He creates human beings. He gives them instructions that very clearly include sexual interaction with one another. And he calls all of that very good. At risk of sounding crass, uh, it did not catch God off guard when certain body parts worked the way that they worked that make sex sexual. God was not up in the heavens going, oh my gosh, I had no idea they would use that to do that. (laughs) He was not panicking. He designed those body parts to work in that way. Sex was God's idea. That is how God feels about sex. Have I made my point or are you just uncomfortable and want me to move on? 
The next development in the story continues on that same trajectory. It happens in Genesis 2, if you want to flip over a page or so with me there. Genesis chapter 2. So if you're newer to the Bible or you're unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, basically what we get in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, are two different tellings of the human origin story. So chapter 1 kind of takes it big picture. It takes a 30,000-foot view of it all. And then chapter 2 comes back and fills in some of the specifics of all that. So in what we're about to read, we're going to get a little more detail into the marriage between Adam and Eve and about their subsequent sexual relationship with each other. So take a look with me at verse 24 of chapter 2. It says this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The husband and wife become one flesh. So it would be hard to overstate the importance of the verse we just read to a Christian sexual ethic. It's massively important. This verse right here, verse 24, is absolutely ground zero for how we understand and approach it all, such that the biblical authors, especially in the New Testament, will circle back to this verse, Genesis 2.24, time and time again, every time that they want to talk about marriage and or sex. They cite it often. The idea behind marriage, according to the Bible, is a husband and a wife becoming one flesh. That's the idea. So the word there for one in the Hebrew is the word ekad, and it can mean one as in singular, or it can mean one as in together as one. Here in Genesis 2, it actually seems to mean both. Marriage is when two separate people come together as one unit. One biblical scholar describes that phrase, one flesh, as two people becoming, quote, fused together at the deepest levels of their being. I think that captures it really well. That's what marriage is at least intended to be, according to the Bible. Two people becoming one flesh. And if that's what marriage is in the Bible, then sex is a physical representation of that reality. If marriage is when two lives become one, then sex is when two bodies become one. So notice here that the reason the Bible teaches no sex outside of marriage isn't just because sex is fun and God prefers that only married people have fun. That's not the point. The point is that you shouldn't do something with your body that you aren't doing with the rest of your life. It's a matter of consistency and integrity with your humanity. If you are not ready to join your life with another person, you shouldn't join your body with them either. You see, the Bible actually insists that we as humans are integrated beings. We are mind and body and heart and everything else all wrapped up into one. And if that's true, it would follow that it's actually unhealthy to chop up those different parts of us and place them at odds with one another. It's unhealthy to do something with your body that you aren't prepared to do with your mind and your heart. That's actually a deeply harmful way to carry your humanity. God cares who you sleep with because he cares about your humanity. And because of that, he suggests that we not do things with our bodies that we aren't prepared to do with our lives. That is why the Bible teaches no sex outside of marriage. Now, even if you happen to disagree with that ethic, 
I think you would find that if you took that logic and, and you took it out of the realm of sex and sexuality for just a second, that it actually makes a lot of practical sense. So let's say that you're in the room and you just started dating someone, like in the past couple weeks. And let's say you come to me for some dating advice. I don't know why you're coming to me for dating advice, but it's an illustration. So just one reason or another, you come to me for dating advice. And let's say I look at you with complete seriousness, and here's the advice that I give. I say, okay, you've been dating for a few weeks. I think what you need to do now is go ahead and combine bank accounts with the person you're dating. Just take everybody's money, put it in one big pot, and then each person can withdraw and spend as they see fit. I think that will be a great next step for intimacy in your relationship. Thoughts on that? I think most of you would laugh in my face, right? And never ask me for dating advice ever again because most of us would agree that is terrible advice. And it is terrible advice. But why is it terrible advice? Well, I think we would argue that sharing bank accounts at that point in the relationship is far too intimate of a thing to do for that early stage in the relationship. It's too much oneness for where the relationship currently is. For most people, it doesn't make sense to be financially one before you know if you're ready to be relationally one. Okay, but couldn't you make the same exact argument about sex? Why is sharing our money too personal and too intimate, but sharing our bodies isn't? Now, maybe you hear that and you think, okay, but we didn't just start dating. Me and my boyfriend or girlfriend, we didn't just start dating. We've been dating for a year, two years, three years, four years. We practically are one relationally already. Surely we don't need to be married just to say that we're fully committed to one another. To which I would simply say, if you really are fully committed to one another, why would you be opposed to proving that by getting married? It sounds to me like you're not completely sure. Listen, for at least the past 2,000 years or so, in most human societies that have existed, the way, to, the way to prove that you are relationally committed to someone has been marriage. So if you and the other person you're dating aren't confident enough in your level of commitment to do that, I think that's probably something you should be honest about with the other person. But all of that said, the scriptures simply make the point that sex has a purpose. It's two people becoming one flesh and acting that out physically. And that when we approach sex from within that purpose, it is good and beautiful and even helpful to participate in. We see this in the next verse of Genesis 2. So take a look with me there. Verse 25, it says, as a result of them becoming one flesh was this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked, and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve felt no shame in regards to their relationship with one another. Now, obviously, that line is first meant literally, as in they were literally naked. They had no clothes on, and they weren't ashamed by it. But I think it also goes beyond that. Remember, biblically, the physical is a representation of the rest of the relationship, right? So naked and unashamed here in this passage is actually describing the experience of two people that have nothing to hide from one another. Two people who were completely known by the other person and still completely accepted by the other person. 
No reservations, no partial commitments, no keeping their options open in case someone better comes along. Complete oneness and openness and intimacy with the other person. And because that was the dynamic between Adam and Eve, there was no shame to speak of in the relationship. I always think it's interesting when people accuse Christianity of making sex seem shameful. I understand what they mean, but according to this passage, God's intention for sex is actually that shame would be completely absent from it. Shame is what we added somewhere along the way. Now, like I said earlier, I think it's completely fair to say that the church has often done that by communicating only the negative version of the Christian sexual ethic. And I think that needs to change about how we present it to people that don't understand it yet. But I also think we have to acknowledge our society's approach to sex isn't innocent in the matter of shame either. Sure, there has been some harm done by people claiming to represent God, but there's also been tremendous harm done by those who claim to represent a progressive sexual ethic. I wonder if by pinning all the blame on the church, our society hasn't pinned some blame where it doesn't belong. Writer Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. He says, the church has always struggled with sex, but so has everyone else. There aren't any cultures, religious or secular, pre-modern or modern, post-modern or post-religious, that exhibit a truly healthy sexual ethos. Every church and every culture struggles with integrating sexual energy, if not in its creed about sex, at least in the living out of that creed. Secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anirotic. Partly this is true, but the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it is one of the few voices still remaining who are challenging anyone towards sexual responsibility. As well, the church might also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. Everyone is struggling. Now, there's so much we could unpack just in that quote, right? For starters, I, I really love the term sexual responsibility, I would argue that's a helpful concept. I would argue that's one of the few things sorely lacking in our society right now, the willingness by anyone to take responsibility for how they carry their sexuality and for the effects that it may have on other people. And I wonder if that's around a lot of our problems around sex. But I also really resonate with what he said at the end. He said any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality should, quote, step forward and show the evidence. And I'll just tell you, uh, when it comes to whether or not our society currently has a healthy sexual ethic, the evidence out there is not great. Nearly every stat you'll find shows that the further we get into the sexual revolution, the less sex people are actually having. Pornography is now considered, even by some secular researchers, to be a public health crisis because of its direct contribution to rape culture and objectification of people. And we'll talk more about this here in a second, but hookup culture is wreaking tremendous harm everywhere, especially on college campuses in America. The evidence is not great. But I think more importantly, behind all of those statistics and trend lines and analysis are, are the stories of real people. 
There's the college woman who can't stand to talk to the guy she's hooking up with without alcohol in her system. There's the high school girl who feels like she can't hold a boyfriend for more than a couple weeks unless she is willing to perform every sex act in the porn that he's watching and then outperform the next girl that he's interested in. There's the guy who has so emotionally disconnected himself from sex that a long-term meaningful relationship in the future doesn't even feel possible for him, much less desirable. And we could go on. But if you take a raw look at the evidence, it turns out that much of the argument made for sexual freedom out there might be more of an emotional argument than it is a rational one. Maybe our society has correctly critiqued some of the church's approach to sex, but they haven't exactly offered up anything better. We don't talk about it much, largely because we're so nervous about shaming people over their sexual choices, but the sexual revolution has pushed a lot of vulnerable men and women to the front lines of the battlefield and then left them there for dead, or at least for complete relational bankruptcy. Maybe the movement has had some success, depending on how you define success. But it's also had a lot of casualties. So a question for us, why aren't our society's solutions working? Why aren't they working? Why aren't our culture's attempts at sexual freedom having their intended effects? Well, I would argue the reason is precisely what we said earlier from the book of Genesis. In much of our culture's approach to sex, we have tried to rip the act of sex away from its intended design. Remember, in the Bible, human beings are mind, body, heart, all wrapped up into one. So sex is meant to be an enjoyable experience precisely because it's meant to be an integrated experience. Sex is meant to be a beautiful, physical way of expressing what is true of the rest of the relationship, of the rest of our humanity. But when we operate as if that's not true, when when we try to insist that sex is only physical, like it's just an appetite that can be fulfilled by anyone, anytime, in any context, what we are doing is attempting to tear the physical away from the psychological and the emotional aspects of sex. We're attempting to do something with our bodies that is decidedly untrue of the rest of our being. And that takes a tremendous psychological toll on us as a result. One woman interviewed on the subject, a college student here in the U.S. named Alicia, put it this way. She said, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. A therapist would tell you that what she's describing there is essentially disassociation. The process of psychologically disconnecting from core parts of ourselves in order to cope with a traumatic experience. Now, disassociation isn't always bad. Sometimes it's simply necessary to cope with experiences that we've had. But at the same time, most psychologists would tell you you should never intentionally pursue disassociation as a regular habit, especially when it comes to something as important as consensual sexual experiences. When you do that, you are actually training yourself to be emotionally detached from sex, which is an extremely unhealthy thing to do. 
One UCLA psychiatrist actually quit her job a few years back because she had students coming to her for therapy who had severe psychological issues largely resulting from their approach to sex. But the university wouldn't let her counsel students in terms of right or wrong or even discourage sexual behavior that had clear harmful effects. And so she was trying to offer helpful therapy to these students, but she couldn't address the thing at the center of the problem. All of this led another psychiatrist here in the U.S. to note, it is no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and the birth control pill. Our society's approach to sexuality is taking a tremendous toll on us, whether we realize it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And that's just the effect it has on us. Engaging in sex in this way also has concerning impacts on how we view sexual partners. One author articulates it this way, if the purpose of sexuality is mere pleasure, Sooner or later, the other person with all of their personality and their own separate desires is going to become burdensome. So we can dress it up with whatever sexual freedom language we want to. But at the end of the day, society's sexual ethic is just that. Using another person's body for your gratification. Even if both parties consent to it. That just means it's two people using each other for their own gratification. And that ethic has profound negative impacts on our ability to have and maintain meaningful human relationships. You cannot have a meaningful relationship with a body. You need a person for that. Or, if you prefer, Miley Cyrus puts it this way. I've cleaned up the language a little bit for our purposes, but this is the quote. Sex is easy. You can find someone to have sex with in five seconds. We want to find someone we can talk to and be ourselves with. That's fairly slim pickings. Ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that when the Bible and Miley Cyrus agree, (laughs) maybe we should listen. But the reason none of this is working is that it was never designed to work. This, to me, is what makes the biblical sexual ethic so compelling. It's one of the few worldviews that acknowledge that we are integrated human beings. So when we feel connected to the person we have sex with, that's not just a shortcoming in our genetic makeup. It's because we were designed to connect. When we catch feelings for someone we have sex with, it's not because we're not talented enough at disassociating. It's because sex was intended to be an integrated experience. God always designed it that way. Sex is meant to coincide with intimacy, and intimacy is meant to be embodied in an actual committed relationship. So here's my point. I would submit to you that even if you disagree with the biblical sexual ethic, the logic behind it is sound. And maybe you're here and you're like, oh yeah, it makes total sense. I just still don't want to live that way. And that's fair. I can respect the honesty in that. But that's kind of the thing with following Jesus, isn't it? Anybody can obey Jesus when they feel like it. Only followers of Jesus can obey Jesus because he's worth obeying. Because his way is better, whether or not we always feel like it. At some point, you have to decide Is Jesus king or is he not? 
Does he get to tell me how to live every aspect of my life or do I get to decide which areas of my life he gets access to? That's the question that we're all faced with. That's the decision when it comes to following Jesus. But maybe all of this means that the problem isn't so much with the Christian sexual ethic itself being wrong as it is that the way we have presented that ethic to the world has been wrong. Maybe the problem isn't the ethic, but rather the moral superiority with which we've presented that ethic to everyone. Maybe the problem isn't in how we handle our sexuality, but in the way that we've related to those who don't handle their sexuality in the same way as us. And I think it's really important that we nuance those two things out. Jesus, for example, set the bar extremely high when it came to sexual ethics and morality, saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's about as high of an ethic as you can shoot for. But that same Jesus said to a woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. The same Jesus who said, if your right hand causes you to sin sexually, you should cut it off and throw it away. That same Jesus was also known as a regular acquaintance and friend to tax collectors and prostitutes. Which tells me that no matter how correct your sexual ethic is, no matter how correct it is, if it doesn't include grace and compassion to those who don't live up to it, it is not the ethic of Jesus. Jesus didn't think you had to update your sexual ethics in order to show compassion to the world, and he didn't feel like you had to treat the world with disdain in order to hold to your ethic. Jesus knew that sex had a purpose. He made no apologies for teaching that. But he also knew that God was capable of taking those who had lived outside of that purpose and making them completely new people. Jesus knew that true righteousness doesn't come from obeying God's rules. It comes from becoming God's kid. And that can only happen through the cross and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul details this long list of sins. Some of you guys have read it. He details out this long list of of certain behaviors that are sinful, and many of them are sexual in nature. He's very clear in saying that anyone who participates in those types of behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then in one of the most glorious turns of phrase, and I think all of the scriptures, speaking to followers of Jesus, he says, and such were some of you. Notice the tense there, were. Such were some of you. But, he says, the difference is that you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I wonder if sometimes the reason that our Christ-inspired sexual ethic seems so unchrist-like to the world is because we forget that we once were on that list. I wonder if we forget sometimes that we were those people until God did something about it. Every single one of us has disqualified ourselves from the kingdom of God. 
Maybe because of our sexuality, maybe because of our sexual expression, but if not due to those things, in how we treated people based on those things or in something else altogether. Every single one of us have been disqualified from the kingdom of God, but we are now qualified for the kingdom of God because Jesus did something about it. Because he made sure that his life and death and resurrection stood in our place. We didn't will ourselves into the kingdom of God. We were rescued into it. So if you're here this morning and and you feel burdened by sexual shame, the religious kind or the irreligious kind, shame can come from anywhere. If you are one person on that long list of people that feel like casualties in the sexual revolution... If you feel like a relationship or an experience or a hookup has chewed you up and spit you out, if that's you and you feel like any of that has left a stain on your soul, hear Jesus say that there's no stain that can't be washed. There's no harm that can't be healed. There's no such, there is such a thing as shame. It's real. As so many of us know, there is such a thing as shame, even if our society tells us there's not. But there's also such a thing as redemption. And redemption is found freely and fully in the cross of Jesus. And if we can be helpful to you as a community, if we can be a helpful resource to you in finding that healing and redemption in Jesus, please come talk to us. The the community of Jesus here at City Church is made up of people who have walked through sexual brokenness and are in various stages of walking out the other side of it. None of us are perfect. All of us are struggling. And because of that, we would love few things more than to help you with what we've learned so far. We would love to help you find the freedom and the redemption that is in Jesus. And lastly, if you're a part of our community here at City Church, I want to just end by asking this. When, when people come around us who, who do have that type of story, do they encounter something resembling the acceptance and compassion of Jesus? Do they experience people ready to welcome them in instead of shutting them out? Because that's the work of the Spirit in our midst. I want you to hear me say that any Pharisee can articulate a Christian sexual ethic. Only gospel people can welcome sinners like Jesus did. May we be that type of gospel people. Let me pray for us. God, I don't want to... uh, I don't want to close out this morning without acknowledging um, the very real hurt, very real struggles, very real stories of people in this room. God, just the the nature of um, the the age of people in our church, the, the demographic, the part of town that we're in, God, just the our society being what it is today, I I know there's likely very few people in this room that have not been impacted in some way, shape, or form by sexual brokenness. And so I I, I just want to ask this morning that you would do what you do 
would you show up in our midst and help us to see that you've got no desire to shame anyone. You've got no desire to condemn anyone. But God, what you want so badly is to rescue us out of our sin and our brokenness and our shame, wherever it comes from, and bring us into a kingdom that is free of all of those things. And so God, if there's people here this morning that need to, that need to wrestle with some stuff, that need to walk with somebody else through some stuff, that need help, that need a reminder of the grace and compassion that you came to bring. God, if there's any of that that needs to happen this morning, I pray we wouldn't fight it. Pray we wouldn't resist it. But rather that we'd lean into it. God, as we look through the scriptures and we see the way that you you interact with those that, that feel like they've just ruined it all, the way that you relate to people who feel like they've messed up in a major way, the way that you relate to people who, who don't know anything other than identifying with their shame and with their brokenness. God, the way that you respond to those people is always with an embrace. with words of life and hope and healing and redemption. And so God, if there's any of us here this morning that need that, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, God, I pray that we'd find that in you, that we'd find that through your spirit, that we'd find that from your people. God, I thank you that you not only call us to live in the light, but you give us the ability to live in the light by not, not being defined by the things that have kept us in the dark. So God, if there's breakthrough that needs to happen, if there's rescue and healing that needs to happen, God, will you just do that in our midst this morning? Would you help us to recognize it? Would you help us to respond to it? Would you help us to find goodness and wholeness and healing in you? God, we ask this in your name.